Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. As a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. For today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Liz Kojal, who's affiliated with the University of Kansas in conjunction with the Land Institute. She was here to talk about microbiomes, which is something that we have chatted about before, but more specifically, she was here to talk about plant microbiomes, which is something that we have not talked about before on the show. And we also had a chance to discuss them in relation to their role in grassland restoration, which was another new subject for me. Uh, but anyway, it was a great conversation. So without any further ado, let's go straight to it. Dr. Kojal, thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. Okay, I was wondering, just to get us started, if you could tell us a little bit about grassland restoration, which is sort of the context for the rest of your article. You know, where are grasslands being restored, what areas, and, and why are we doing that? Uh, well, grassland restorations happen all over the place in areas where there were historically grasslands. Um, it's a huge commercial industry in the U.S. right now, but happens all over the world. Uh, the area that I work in is the tall grass prairie, which historically ranged from Canada to nearly Mexico, um, all the way from Indiana to Colorado. So this is the region that I study, the tall grass prairie in the central U.S. There's also short grasses in um, western U.S., Pretty much anywhere there aren't trees, that's a grassland. Okay, that's a huge area, um, you know, more so even than I'd, I'd yeah. ever thought of. <laughs> I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned an industry. What's what's the what's the industry and the motivation behind restoring these? Were these, you know, previously, you know, agricultural lands that are now being restored to, you know, more of a native uh, structure? Yeah, the majority of, especially the tall grass prairie, was converted to row crop agriculture. Um, so the prairies and being prairie for thousands of years, um, created super fertile soil, which was pretty easy for farmers to till up because it's short grasses, you know, you could run a plow through it. Um, and so this land was chosen for row crop agriculture because it was so fertile and also easy to convert into that type of um, conventional planting that we do. And for restoration, this happens for a number of reasons. Um, it's, it's difficult to maintain a field in row crop agriculture for long periods of time. And so sometimes these fields go, they're not as productive and people want them to go fallow. And so in that case, they might do a restoration. So that's one reason the land is just not as productive anymore. Um, another reason people might do restoration is economic incentive. So the government has programs such as um, I think it's called the Grassland Reserve Program, the CRP, which they will actually pay farmers to convert some of their land to native grasslands once again for things such as diversity, um, repairing riparian zones, or even promoting wildlife. Okay, so it's a case in which you know either you're not getting what you were once getting out of it agriculturally, mm -hmm. or the government has, you know, come in and said, you know, we have an environmental and an ecological, um, you know, incentive for you to restore this to its, you know, more native form. Yeah, I'd say that's the, the majority of the, the, commercial, the commercial approaches to restoration. But lots of people restore for many reasons. I mean, these communities are super beautiful and super diverse. And so for that reason, um, people restore for like a, a beautiful native garden. Um, and those type of restorations happen from this scale, like my own, my backyard restoration in Bloomington, Indiana is only like 400 square feet, very small, 
to acres and acres of a city park um, and that kind of scale. Okay. And so let's talk a little bit now about, you know, how that's kind of done in a traditional sense, you know, uh, without taking into account, you know, the microbiome of the landscapes. Sure. Um, what was what was the old approach and, and where did it fall short? Um, I'd say most approaches are basically what you do is you take your landscape and try to clear it of the existing vegetation. So if you're going from an ag field, that's really easy. There's pretty, there is almost no existing vegetation. So from there, you would simply apply seeds of prairie plants. Um, you can buy these at many different native grass and forb um, companies that exist across the U.S. And people also collect seed and use it for restoration from an existing remnant or another restoration. So the basic principle is you take a land, clear it of the existing vegetation, and add seed propagules of what you want to establish in that area, which is prairie plants. Okay, so you you plant the prairie plants, and you know how successful is this? Does it you know it's it's not a slam dunk? It does it doesn't work all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, how how much does it work if you just throw out some seeds of you know kind of what you whatever you would consider to be or know to be the you know native plant structure? Yeah, I would say um, you know every restoration in my mind is a success. But that being said, they're all mostly largely failures. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Because it's very easy for us to put seeds down and get some native plants to establish. That is not a difficult thing to do. But what we often have trouble doing is restoring specific plant species and also having all the, the, the plant species that were in those remnant communities. And by remnant, I mean undisturbed prairies. So that's always the, the goal in my mind is try to recreate a prairie as it was. That's my management goal. Um, it's very difficult to get all of those plant species back in a restoration. And this can be true despite throwing pounds of seeds of those species into your restored area. For some reason, many plant species don't reestablish despite being seeded. Um, and that's where I think the microbiome comes in to play. Okay. And so now we've talked about, you know, microbiomes on this show before, uh, you know, be that in the area of the International Space Station or, uh, you know, the microbiome of a person's gut or, you know, a built environment. What's a plant microbiome and, you know, and how does that contribute to their, um, you know, well-being, ability to establish, ability to thrive? Yeah. I, mean, I think a microbiome is not so different from across those contexts. From a plant microbiome perspective, it just means the little things that live on and near them that interact with them. Um, they have many different organisms, both above and below ground, which is very interesting. Uh, the kind of microbiome that I look at is in the rhizosphere, which just means the root area. So that interface between root and soil, the organisms that live there and interact with the plant are the organisms that I study and think about, which are mycorrhizal fungi, among other things. Okay, mycorrhizal fungi, that's gonna be uh, a new word for at least some of our listeners, it was yeah. for me. Um, <laughs> What does that mean? What kind of species are we talking about and what do they do? How do they contribute to plant well-being? Sure. Well, it literally, it literally means, so myco means fungus in Latin and rhizo means root. So it's a fungus interacting with a root. The type of fungi that I study are called endomycorrhizal fungi, meaning they actually live inside of root tissues. So they sort of burrow between plant cells and um in this way can exchange nutrients with the plant actually inside of the root. And so if you were trying to establish a plant from seed, is it the case that those simply wouldn't be there? 
Um, I wouldn't say that exactly. I would say the species of mycorrhizae that are present are, are have been disturbed as well. Um, so fungi, a muscular mycorrhizal fungi, um, these endomycorrhizal fungi I'm discussing, live almost everywhere. Um, they even float around in the air. I bet some of them have made it to space. Um, <laughs> so they're all over the place. They're in even a cornfield that's been tilled up every year for the past 120 years. There's still some fungi there. But the perspective of my lab group and of this article is that the fungi in these highly disturbed soils are really different than the ones that might be in a native prairie. Okay, and in what ways are they different? Well, the composition of species, what species are present, can be different. Um, and also the growth form of species. For example, there's this fungus, Glomus interatices, which is really small and makes a lot of spores. Um, it also reproduces really, really quickly. This fungus tends to increase with disturbance um, versus some other species that might grow really slowly can be sensitive to this chopping up practice um, that happens in agricultural environments through, via tillage. And so those species might be lost with that type of soil treatment. Okay, so you've got sort of, you know, the wrong composition of species or the wrong composition of, you know, growth types in, in much the same way, uh, you know, just for the sake of analogy that someone might have in a gut scenario. I, I wonder then, you know, what, what role do they play for the plants? You know, you said that they're living sort of in the roots themselves. You know, what, what are they doing? What role do they play? Um, so, yeah, that's the basic of the interaction, but a, a lot of the reason why plants um, keep fungi around is what they do outside of the root. So they have these structures called the hyphae. Um, it's essentially long filaments, not so different from a plant root. And they send hyphae can grow throughout the soil um, in sort of a netted, um, I guess, root-like structure and explore the soil and explore fine particles of soil in places that plants might not necessarily be able to reach. So the fungi can grow out into the dirt, into the soil, and collect nutrients and then pass them along their filamentous hyphae back to the plant and essentially feed that plant the nutrients that they're finding in the soil. And the type of fungi that I work with, endomycorrhizal fungi, um, they're really good at collecting phosphorus from soil. So they release enzymes that allow them to pick up phosphorus and then pass that back to their plant hosts. So the plants, you know, often are, are limited by phosphorus in so far as they grow only as much as they have enough phosphorus to grow. It's one of those really important things. <laughs> right. And, and then you have a situation in which the fungi are helping them get more of it and therefore allowing them to grow better. So that's why we would expect them to thrive in that presence. Yeah. And some plants are so dependent on mycorrhizae that their root structures may have been, um, through evolution with these uh, soil fungi, have developed to not be able to pick up phosphorus as well on their own, if, if at all. Um, so a really mycorrhizal plant that I can think of is um, Allium cernuum. It's an onion, not so different from the onion you might have had with your lunch. Um, but this plant does not have very fine roots, and it does not have very many root hairs. And so that type of plant would have an extremely difficult time collecting all the nutrients it needs on its own in the absence of mycorrhizal fungi. So it needs a little help from the fungi. Now, I'm wondering, are the fungi getting anything out of this? You know, but it's, this sounds like a symbiotic relationship, but we've, we've, we've talked about one side of it. What's the other one? Yeah, it's, a, it's totally a symbiotic relationship um, to the extent where 
the type of fungi I study, Arborsicular mycorrhizal fungi, cannot live without a plant host. So they can't fix or collect um, carbon whatsoever. They're relying completely on being fed sugar from the plant via root exudates. Basically, it's a carbon for phosphorus exchange, which really keeps this symbiotic relationship maintained. Okay, cool. So I think we've we've talked through some of the theory now. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how would this be applied in practice if you were restoring a grassland somewhere? What would the approach be? How would it be different from what's been done traditionally, um, you know, if you were trying to apply this knowledge? Right. So generally, uh, what is in the soil is not thought about at all in a restoration context. So the only goal is to put seeds out and then to try to manage weeds by burning and mowing um, that type of management perspective. And so in thinking about amending a microbiome organism would totally change the way we do restorations Um, because these are living things. They need things. Um, The type of fungi that I work with are obligately reliant on a plant host. So you would have to put them down at a time where a plant root could be around pretty quickly after inoculating, let's say a field. Um, Otherwise that fungus will, will die without a plant host. Yeah. So these are things we would have to think about if we're going to put this in practice on a large scale. You know, in science, we often do these really tiny, adorable research plots, which are amazing and can teach us a lot. But um, we do have huge steps we have to take to be able to throw these practices out at the scale of restoration today. Yeah, right. In some of these cases, we're talking about pretty large areas, right? Yeah. It can be many, many hundreds of acres. Could be a small restoration in some places. The way that we often have used microbiome is to inoculate little seedlings and plant them out with their microbiome for research questions, which works great, but that's a super, super labor-intensive practice. Um, But one that restoration companies do use sometimes, they do plant plugs out and could plant um, plugs inoculated with microbiome. The other way would be to find a way to um, deliver microbiome amendments Similarly to how we distribute seeds, which is via some sort of seed drill or other mechanism. Okay, so this would be a case in which you know you were you were doing it in an automated fashion. Mm-hmm. Is is it easy to grow them? You know, in, in in advance of that, in order to get enough inoculum or whatever you need. Um, it is. It does take quite a bit of training to be able to grow them. Um, they're sensitive. They need a plant host to survive. They also need soil. So they have to be able to reward a plant host with something from the soil for that mutualism to be maintained over the long run. There are some ways to grow mycorrhizae in plates with on transformed roots. Um, this is also a really labor-intensive practice, and only certain species like to grow in this environment. So the way to grow mycorrhizae um, in the most natural context is in a soil growing media. But as we know, there's a lot of things alive in soil. So basically what I have to do is sterilize a bunch of soil, put some spores in of just the mycorrhizae that I want to culture. And then it takes many months um, of growing for that inocula to propagate enough to be used in any sort of larger scale. Okay. So uh, that sounds very challenging. And 
Gosh, that's going to be hard to scale yeah. <laughs> up. So we've talked a little bit about what you would do um, to get these out into the field. What kind of results do you get? You know, what what happens differently when you try to restore a grassland using you know um, inoculated soil or whatever other technique is most available uh, versus the traditional method of just you know throwing out seed? Yeah. Um, so throwing out seed can get you some. It will get you native plants. I'm not saying you have to use the microbiome to do restoration and have success. But for some species, you really, really need to add the microbiome partners that they need. Um, the one that I think of that comes to mind most strongly when I think of prairie restorations is lead plant, Morphokinesis. Um, this charismatic late successional prairie plant is difficult to restore, but if you add mycorrhizae to it, um, at least native mycorrhizal fungi, we've seen it establish in a prairie and even flower after just two growing seasons, um, which is pretty amazing for a plant that is often slow growing, slow growing and can be completely absent in a restoration despite us throwing lots and lots of seeds out. But if we add the microbiome amendments with these seeds, um, we see plants that are strongly dependent on those microbiome species become more prevalent. So you can get a plant community that actually looks like those remnant prairies that you know you were you were talking about earlier. Yeah, that is the goal. Mm-hmm. But there are so many different kinds of mycorrhizal products out there. Um, people have had so many different kinds of results in using mycorrhizal products, from nothing to negative um, to extremely beneficial responses with tons of forbs and. Um, legumes responding positively. I would say forbs, which are are just pretty flowering plants, um, and legumes, which I'm sure you've heard of, like a bean. Um, (laughs) These are plants that are, tend to be less um, abundant in restorations relative to undisturbed prairie communities. So in adding microbiome amendments, we see this particular plant groups increase in abundance. Okay, and what's next for your research? You know, it sounds like this has been tested and looked at in some contexts, but there are still more to go. Uh, what are you going to look at next? Um, well, in a prairie context, something that I think about a lot is um, native mycorrhizae. We think are more are extremely important in prairie restorations, um, and we often try to use local native mycorrhizae. But we what we don't have a good sense of is how local is local. Can you take mycorrhizae from Colorado and put it in a restoration in Kansas and it be as effective um, as mycorrhizae you might find from Kansas? So how local is local um, is an important thing I think we need to think about before we're throwing microbes out in all these restorations. Yeah. And is there any chance, you know, is there any invasive potential there or is it, you know, is that, is that still unknown? Um, That is totally unknown and something that worries me a lot as a scientist. Um, I think some of the species of mycorrhizae in commercial products tend to display more rural characteristics. They kind of behave like weeds. And so we know that weeds can sometimes be invasive um, in, in, with regards to plants. And so I believe with mycorrhizae, the same thing could definitely happen. So what's the, you know, what are the products that are already out on the market and how do they differ from, you know, what would be uh, in your mind a, a better product? Right. Um, so there, there are so many different products on the market. You know, if you go to your local garden store or look on Amazon, even in many of the potting mixes that you can buy already have mycorrhizae um, 
mixed in them. And so a lot of people are using mycorrhizae without even knowing it. For example, if you buy a houseplant from Lowe's, it's probably inoculated. Um, so this stuff's being used all over the place, and we haven't really studied what that means to the extent that um, would make me happy as a person who researches this. <laughs> no, I can imagine not. So is this a case in which you've got the, it's already being practiced, but widely. it's not being practiced with, widely practiced, but not yet with, you know, the, the scientific rigor of finding out exactly which species um, should be paired with others and in what contexts, in what geographies, et cetera. Exactly. And where they came from. So many of these mycorrhizal, mycorrhizal products have um, a small number of species and they tend to be largely the same. Um, and products don't necessarily say what or where, what country even these mycorrhizal, mycorrhizal species came from. And so we're applying huge amounts of uh, just a small, very select few species of mycorrhizae, um, which is very different from what we find in the prairie. So we might not, we don't see an abundance of necessarily one species of mycorrhizae in a native prairie soil. We'll see many, many different species living. So the effect of adding just a large amount of one species, we don't know um, what that dynamic might have for restoration success in the long run. So right now we're, uh, is shotgun approaches being taken and it probably bears being switched to a, a precision mm -hmm. laser type of approach. That would make me happy. <laughs> I think it would probably make all of us happy. Um, and that seems like a good place to leave it. Dr. Kojal, thank you very much for joining me today. Sure. No problem. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.